0: Thanks, Luke. Yeah, you are right. Uh, Romans uh, 6 through 8 is truly one of the most, I think, succinct and uh, important sections of our New Testament. My gosh, to be able to articulate what it really means to live a new life in Christ is uh, profound. And Paul does just an outstanding job of, of, of setting the foundation, the base for what it really looks like to live new life. I mean, we all want to live a new life. We want to live the resurrection. I mean, if, if Christ came to bring resurrection life, which we all came out to celebrate several weeks ago for Easter, then how in the world do we live it? I mean, that's what we, we want to live into what it is that Christ has given us. And so that's where we're going to finish up this remarkable series. And I hope you have... Your uh, uh, notebooks, if you take notes, and also the, the passage of Scripture uh, printed out for you. We're going to actually go a little bit further than verse 17, but uh, 12 to 17 is most certainly uh, the, the gist of the section that we're going to look at this morning. Well, let me illustrate what new life in Christ looks like. Let me, let, let's think about this a second as we begin. So, There's a famous evangelist in the 1800s. His name was Dwight L. Moody from the East Coast. He was converted, um, and he lived through two really remarkable events in American history. One was the Civil War, and during the Civil War, Dwight L. Moody, now as a follower of Christ, would minister to both sides, the troops, the men that would come out to battle. And he had a profound impact in ministering and sharing the gospel. I mean, imagine just the, the fear and the hopelessness and the situation that was going on in America at that time, that our country was divided and we were fighting each other. And we were destroying families, each other's families. And young men were fighting each other. And they didn't really want to be on those different sides. And Dwight L. Moody found himself in that situation. And uh, he also lived through the great earthquake in Chicago, having moved to Chicago. And a lot of what he had built was just literally ruined. And it was out of the ruins of the fire, the great fire uh, in the 1800s in Chicago, that uh, he became a great evangelist, a powerful, powerful evangelist preaching new life in Christ. And one day, an atheist challenged him to a debate. And he accepted the challenge. And he agreed, however, there was one condition to this debate. And that one condition is that the atheist needed to produce 10 or more people whose lives had been changed by the ideology of atheism. And then Moody said he would have at least 100 people on the platform who could testify to the fact that his belief and their belief in Christ had changed their lives from immorality and depravity to lives of integrity and uprightness. He said, I will show you prostitutes and murderers and thieves whose lives have been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ The atheist, not able to produce even one example, he withdrew his offer. The Apostle Paul says in Romans that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, From faith to faith, it is from faith to faith that we believe in God and we receive the righteousness of God and live live a new life. It's the power of the resurrection. And Paul was the greatest example of a converted life of hatred and anger, murderous thoughts and activities and actions. And his life was changed, radically changed, and set off on a different projection. And you know that. You know the story. And many of us are sitting here this morning going, Well, why is that not happening for me? And Romans is helping us understand how. And it begins in Romans chapter six. We have a great problem. And the problem is sin, it's plastered all over our headlines mass shootings bank and financial fraud, politicians misrepresenting truth to benefit themselves, leaders showing prejudice, hatred, judgment. Our country, according to Atlantic article, has turned from the belief in God and church attendance to an argument in what is the best ideology, often politically charged. We were discussing in our staff meeting this last week, how we will love and accept people of all orientations. And we recognize in the midst of this difficult but necessary conversation of acceptance and love, we are weird. We are truly weird. And we need to recognize we're weird. I mean, I met my wife through a friend that called me a Jesus freak. And said, your wife is also, this, you got to meet this girl. She's a Jesus freak too, just like you. And the, we met each other and fell in love and now we're Jesus freaks together. We are weird. We are totally weird to believe the things that we believe. I mean, think about it. We believe in marriage. We believe in sexual morality and humility and service and financial stewardship. Giving our resources to God. I mean, that's crazy. To give up some of what you've earned to the Lord? I mean, that looks really, really weird. Forgiveness, sacrificial love, those are things that are really weird. And yet, in the midst of all of that, it accentuates the problem, which is sin. Sin is rebellion against the authority of God, going your own way. And Romans 6 to 8 is the argument of how we get out of that dilemma, out of that downward cycle. In Romans chapter 6, it tells us that the alternative to a life apart from Christ is bleak. It leads to a slavery. It leads to a bondage where you don't want to live this life, but you're consumed by it. You're You're drawn further into it, and you just keep going and your life and the outcome of your life is bleak. Unless, of course, you, are, you die and are baptized into Christ and receive a new man, a new nature. Romans 7 says you can't do it on your own. As hard as you try, it's not about effort. It's not a moralism. It's a faith in a relationship that changes your heart, that gives you new motivation but you can't do it on your own. Romans 8 comes along and says, here's the answer. It's the power, the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm going to look at this morning. The answer to the problem that the world needs that, and what we need is the power of the Holy Spirit. And nothing's going to change until the Jacques Alol, who's a French Professor, follower of Christ, wrote a book called The Seduction of Christianity. And in the seduction of Christianity, he's basically essentially said the Christians are not living out their full potential. In fact, he says the subversion is it's it's come about this this development of Christianity in the church has given birth to a society and a civilization, a culture that is completely opposite to what the Bible actually says. I mean, so the way he looks at it is that we have been given a massive and major responsibility in this world. We have within our capability the ability to actually make a culture, to create a culture that God wants, that acknowledges and honors him. Our lives are supposed to matter in this world. And yet, as Alol says, is that we have shaped a culture that doesn't look and resemble much like what he reads about in the Bible. And it's our great responsibility. So how do we do it? Romans 8 is all... That's why Romans 8 verse 1 begins, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You no longer live in a shame-based society and mindset. Your identity has been changed. And the way I look at Romans 8 in the first part that Taylor looked at last week is your orientation has changed. We're no longer in common nation. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We now live according to a different law, a different orientation. It's like the law of aerodynamics. Newton's first law of motion. According to Newton's first law of motion, inertia. An object at rest will remain at rest. Or an object in motion will continue in motion at the same speed and in the same direction until an outside force acts on it. Something has to push you. Something has to impact you. Something has to change you. Otherwise, you will not be set in a different trajectory. That is living in the law of the Spirit, setting your mind on the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. And so Paul talks about this this new empowerment, which is a new orientation to a new life. The Spirit of God. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Every day, ask for the filling of the Spirit. And what that simply means is I surrender because if sin is taking authority that God wants to have over our lives away from him and giving it back to ourselves, surrender is giving God authority over our lives. And every time I open my Bible, every time I pray, every time I reflect on what I read in Scripture And what I see God doing, the power of the Spirit, I submit to the power of the Spirit. I surrender. I just surrender. And in that surrendering, in that moment of surrender, reading, praying, seeking, asking, confessing, the Spirit of God is now the law that guides me. No longer a law of condemnation. No longer a law of death. No longer a law that condemns me, but now a law that frees me. How do you want to live your life? I mean, that's the, that's the law of orientation. That's the work of the Spirit of God in Romans chapter 8. We now live in that world, and the more we live in it, the more the Holy Spirit empowers, takes over, takes control. The biggest question in life is who is on the throne of your life? Are you still on the throne of your life? Read through Romans 6 to 8. How is that going to work out for you? Is it going to have a good result? Is it going to lead you to what you really want in life, which is the sense of accomplishment and freedom and peace and satisfaction and hope? The things that we really want in our souls, not just momentary pleasure that just vanishes But the second thing that Paul talks about, and this is what I want to focus on this morning, in terms of the power of the Spirit, it's not just an orientation. It's a whole new identity. God has given you an identity, a powerful identity. And I want to dive deep into this identity. In Romans chapter 8, Paul continues about this idea that we aren't to live according to the flesh in verse 12, but we're to live now according to the the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. We mortify those, that old way of life, the old desires. We put that to death when we live and are led by the Spirit of God. And then Paul says, "And you will know that you are sons of God. for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, there's identity. One identity is slavery. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs and also heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. See what Paul's doing? He's moving from orientation, a new orientation, the law of aerodynamics, where it literally lifts or moves a stationary object. It, it pushes it along. The, the, the way in which an airplane flies is being under, literally under the control of another power. And it's lifted up. And that's, that's, that's you and I in the power of the Spirit. But the second thing that we need to understand, and that's this morning in 12 to 17, is a new identity. You've got to understand who you are before you ever understand the power of the Spirit living and working through your life. There is a relationship between the power of the Spirit and your identity as a follower of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. The only way to experience the Spirit of God alive in you, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, God himself in you working, the Spirit is the part of the Trinity that is the power that gives us ability to live out our lives as Christ desires. Is only possible when we understand identity. And I want to look at two things about identity this morning. One is privilege, and the other one is possibility. There's a great privilege. The privilege comes in our sonship or daughtership. And then in verse 18, all the way to 25, he talks about the groanings that the earth is groaning and that we and our bodies are groaning because. What is to come has not come yet. And so we're still in this place of waiting for something better to come. And there's a great possibility of future. So let's look at those two things. And the first one is the privilege. And in verse 12 to 17, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a son or daughter of the king by inheritance uh, in the spirit. And through a process of adoption... You receive the full rights and benefits of being part of a new family. That's what you get. But do we experience that? Do we believe that? Do you really believe that's true of who you are? As Karl Barth, I read quite a bit of Karl Barth this last week, he said, the spirit is the yes from which proceeds the negation or the the negative knowledge which men have of themselves. So it's the Spirit of God is is alerting us to the reality that we live in. He says, as negation, the Spirit is the frontier and meaning and reality of human life. As affirmation, the Spirit is the new transfigured reality which lies beyond the frontier. So the new frontier is the Spirit leads us into a new frontier beyond the reality of human life into a whole nother realm. That's what the Spirit of God does on the basis of who you are. If you're not a child of God, if you're not adopted by God as a son or a daughter of God, if you're not an heir of the kingdom, if you don't have the ability to call God personally and intimately Abba, look at all of those references to your identity. That's who you are. If you do not have that possibility, then the frontier, the head of you, is bleak. You cannot look beyond your frontier. And that's what Karl Barth is saying. What lies beyond the frontier is the work of the Spirit in giving you a new identity. You've got to know who you are to live out this empowerment that we have in Christ in our new frontier. Uh, my daughter Brooke and I went to a a Chris Stapleton concert this this, uh, last Friday night. How many went? I was looking for you. Anybody else go? I heard a couple other people went. It was a great concert. Phenomenal musician. Great story. Um, His wife, his love of his life was on stage and he paid honor to her, um, the mother of their five children. It was beautiful. It really was. It was like and the guy's just incredible. He's got a great voice. And every single song, uh, he, was, he uh, received a, a new uh, uh, guitar, electric or acoustic guitar. Every single one had a different sound. I mean, just a brilliant musician. But there was one song that we sat and listened to that was just powerful. Play, play just a little bit of it as I share this story. So anyway, back in, I guess, 2013, uh, Chris Stapleton lost his dad. I and after losing sunrise, his dad, and then one of his singles really in. failed on the charts. It just Everything
1: died. He
0: really like thought that life was
1: bleeding.
0: And kind of fell into a depression, and he said his wife knew what to do. Dawn bought him a 1979 I Jeep Cherokee. drove, Bought it out in Arizona and drove it home. And during that drive, he wrote this song, Traveler. My heartbeat's rhythm is a lonesome sound just like the rubber turning on the ground. Always lost, nowhere bound. I'm just a traveler on this earth. Sure as my heart's behind the pocket of my shirt, I'll just keep rolling till I'm in the dirt. Because I'm a traveler. I'm a traveler. I couldn't tell you, honey. I don't know where I'm going, but I've got to go. Because every turn reveals some other road, and I'm a traveler. I'm just a traveler. Thanks, Ron. So, beautiful song. And you just sit and listen, and you just have this sense. You just feel like you're on the open road. You just I felt like I was there, in the Cherokee, driving through the desert. And whenever, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm in that situation and I'm driving, I just feel so alive and I feel, I'm filled with wonder, and I'm also filled with the sense of what's new. I, I, I'm relaxed. I let the worries of the world go, and I'm just, I'm just caught up in the moment. That comes through our privilege of being children of God. Because of who we are, we are travelers into a new frontier, no longer held back by slavery, which leads to sin, it says. This, this slavery that leads us into fear, their sense of fear. And he contrasts that with now the spirit of sonship or daughtership. John, 18, John 8, 34 says that um, whoever commits sin is a servant of sin. Where does sin originate? a lack of sonship or daughtership our rebellion our worry our fear comes from a bad family structure it comes from not having a solid family structure and god is establishing that family structure the problems that we see among youth the challenges The difficulties, the hardships, and the disasters that we have seen, mass shootings, they all come from bad family structures. Every single one of them. Something happened in the context of adolescence where they did not get a true, solid identity from loving parents. And their life went off course. And in the context of this great fear of not knowing who they really are, they lash out at themselves and others. Let me contrast that with a good family structure. I was at a football game with my family. We had season tickets to the USC football game when I was a kid. My dad was a big USC fan, went to dental school there and taught a little bit. And so we were, we were big, big fans. And um, I was walking alone after a game once, and I was ahead of the group. And I don't know how I got separated, but I was walking. I got surrounded by a group of young, they were older than me, boys from the community. And it was frightening. At first, I didn't think anything of it. Never been in that situation. And then all of a sudden I recognized that they, they had me. They, they were holding onto my arms, going through my pockets, asking my, me if I had money, and they saw my watch and they started taking my watch off. And so they flipped my hand over and they were removing my watch. I was just a kid. And in that moment, I didn't even have a chance to be afraid because it happened so fast. I looked back And the image that I saw was my father. He had dropped what he was holding, and he was running straight for me at full speed. And I looked into my father's eyes, and I saw a level of anger and rage and concern for me as a son that I'd never seen before. And he was headed right toward me. And so in that moment, when I saw my father running toward me, I twisted my arm and fell to the ground. And as I twisted my arm, I fell to the ground. I came out of their grip. They no longer had me. And the boys looked back and saw my father running full speed toward me. They scattered. They scattered like a bunch of children, scared little children because they saw a man coming after him, and he was not about to let anything happen to his son. That is identity. That's the kind of identity you and I have as Paul is trying to help us understand how to live in the power of the Spirit, to have the strength of the Spirit living through us. You need to know you're a son of God, a daughter of God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery, of fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And when I saw my dad, I saw Abba. I saw Abba. Abba is an intimate word, an affectionate word for God. It's a personal word. It it means you know him. It's not only intimacy, but it's also experience and knowledge. You know your dad has you no matter what. That has to be secure in your mind, in your frame of thinking. We are children of God and of children heirs, heirs to everything. Now that my father is gone, I've received everything that my father had, but not just material possessions, not just his watch, not just his Italian cashmere, black sport coat that I love, and other items, not just pictures of him, but memories that carry me through, that have created an identity of who I am, that enable me to be strong and courageous and powerful in this world. That's who you have, and maybe you don't have a father figure. Maybe you don't have a good father figure. But maybe you have a mentor, someone in this community that has mentored you, that has given you a glimpse into what it looks like to be a child, an adopted child of the kingdom of God, a God who loves you. That has to be firm in your mindset. And Galatians 4, 6 tells us the cry of our hearts is to cry Abba. And as Douglas Moo points out in his commentary, Christians have a relationship with God that is like Christ's own relationship with God. Think of that. Think of the implications that your relationship with God is similar to that of Jesus' relationship with God. And notice how Jesus relied on God in his life for his direction, for his encouragement during time of discouragement. He looked to the Father. We have that kind of relationship. Are we utilizing it? Are we taking it in? Take your phones out for a minute. I just want you to do something. It's a little crazy. Take your phone out, and I want you to take a, um, just turn the, picture, turn the camera on and turn it around to yourself and look into that and I want you to take a picture of yourself, but I want you to take a picture as you're thinking, as you're thinking of yourself, not the way you see yourself, maybe. I'm ashamed, I'm discouraged, I'm really not that important, that I'm probably really low in the totem pole, but I am a child of God, and he made me just the way he made me. I am not perfect. I do not have it all together. But I look into this picture and take a picture of yourself right now. Just hold on to that moment and take that in for a second. And what if you were to see yourself the way God sees you? Would that change anything? I guarantee you what it will do, it will just enliven the power of the Spirit to work in your life like you've never seen it before. The power comes in the identity. Hold on to that a second. One last thing that I want to end with this morning before Lou comes up and leads us into a time of communion is that the Spirit of God not only gives us privilege but also possibility. Just listen. Listen to the rest of the passage. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the, revel- the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to the futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from slavery, to corruption, and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that he... We also know that the whole creation groans and suffers in the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but I also recognize we ourselves, having been the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, that is seen for, what it, what, who, ho- for who hopes for what, what he already sees. For if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Do you see that? We wait eagerly. The earth, the creation waits and groans because it's not perfected. And it's suffering. The world is suffering because it has not been redeemed yet by Christ. Our bodies are suffering. We live in a world of suffering, and you will suffer until the final redemption when all is created and made new, this world and your life. And in that context, in that suffering, what the Spirit of God is gives you the possibility of a future that enables you to live it now, recognizing that you're heirs of something future. You live it out now. That's the already, but not yet. That is a powerful eschatology. That is the eschatology of the Lord of the Rings. Remember in the Lord of the Rings, after the ring is destroyed, Sam asks Gandalf this question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Everything bad that has happened, will it just be undone? That's the eschatology that Tolkien's trying to help us understand that's given to us by the power of the Spirit. All that is sad is going to come untrue. All the suffering that you endure will have its purpose in the final redemption. And that great possibility, we hold on to that. We hold on to that. So what I want you to do this morning, just if you have your books or maybe uh, your notes, your phone, I want you to do two things. I want you to, first of all, what's the one thing that you you would write down in terms of your identity? What is true of you the way Christ sees you? What are you going to hold on to this morning? What is the one truth, the one idea that's now true of you that you can personalize for yourself? Write that down. Just write. Think it through. Write that down and hold on to that. It is rooted in the truth of Scripture. The second thing I want you to do as we close this morning is I want you to, um, I want you to write down what you believe will be true of you. What will be true of you in the redemption, in the final redemption, in the, when the groaning is done, when the earth is renewed, and all the sons and daughters of God are renewed and redeemed and given their full resurrection bodies, living in the presence of Christ. What, what are you thinking right now? What's that going to look like? What will be true of you? What are you going to say? What, what comes to mind there? I'll be free of fear. I'll be free of my anxiety. I'll be free of my pain. I will be free of disease. I will be free of what? something bad that has happened in my life will be restored. It will. It will be restored. It's a, it's, a, it's a great setback that now gets reset. What is that? And what will be true of you? I will have a new resurrected body. I will no longer be afraid of my future. I. What is it? I want you to write that down. So, Father, this morning, as we are led to the communion table to remember the presence of Christ in our midst, Holy Spirit, would you give us the new identity that we have, a great privilege and a great possibility that will truly uh, empower us in the, the full potential of your spirit to live out, the life you've always wanted us to live. It can only ha- come when we change our mindset and adapt to a new understanding of who we are. May we hold on to that. Father, for so many of us, I just want to pray right now just for a moment. I recognize that for so many of us, it's hard for us to grasp this. And, and it seems like when we talk about identity, it, comes out, it goes in one ear and out the other. It's so fast. And the minute we get in our cars, we've lost our identity. We've lost our, our, our perspective, the Holy Spirit, that you want to give to us. The great privilege that we have and the great possibility. And I pray, Father, that you would cement that in our minds and our hearts this morning. That we would not allow the evil one to snatch that away from us. That it would be true of who we are, even in the midst of our failures and our difficulties and our suffering. Because it is true, it will be true. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Uh, Thanks, Todd, for that and for the word. So what I'd first like to do is uh, invite you to take your phones out, and that photo that you saw, if you like, can you airdrop that with me so that I can get all those beautiful— it doesn't have to be with me, just someone around you, too. I think we need to share those, like, beautiful selfies. Uh, But I love that. I love Todd trying to capture that moment for us. Uh, Now we're going to move to the table. And the table has been, in the history of the church, a central element of the church's worship. What we do at the table is huge and significant. This is Christ's presence with us. We remember Christ with us here present. Christ is here with us this morning. And we are changed by this. So as we've been doing every single week, we want to really bring this truth to life for us. Now, this isn't just some routine thing that we do, but this is something that we see as God's grace, that we remember, that we reflect on God's grace for us and that his grace transforms us, that as we remember his death, our lives are shaped more into his image, that we would also have our lives be cruciform, meaning that we would also have our lives take the shape of Jesus' life in suffering for others in love, and that we would also remember That by his blood, we are participants in this new life in the spirit that Todd was talking about today. As we drink this delicious grape juice, we remember that we are participating in this new life, this resurrected life now, which will be completed in the future. And so we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns in glory. So this is what I'm going to invite us all to do. so, we're going to go take it and take it with, um, with someone else. Take it with a friend and share with each other that this is Christ's body broken for you and Christ's blood shed for you. So, I'm going to read a passage of scripture. <clears throat> it's about the Lord's Supper. It said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, And remember and reflect and be changed by our Lord Jesus Christ in his presence with us. So, Ron, you can play some music. The time is yours.